DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We're joined now by Eric Walden, jazz writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. He joins us on the Smart Rain guest line. It's no secret, Utah's in an extreme drought. That's why Smart Rain is a solution for any commercial property concerned about water consumption while managing irrigation. Find out more at smartrain.net. Eric, good morning. How's it going, guys? Good. Did your Sunday night get turned a little upside down real quickly? Yeah, a little bit. You know, here I was looking forward to a relatively quiet off season for, you know, a few days. And then, man, these jazz just won't let me have a night off, you know? Yeah, just for a few days, I understand what you're saying. So what was your initial reaction? Not surprised. Um, You know, we've been kind of hearing some rumblings that uh, some, some changes were potentially a foot in the, in the jazz front office and um, that Dennis was, was going to be the odd man out as it were. So um, yeah, not surprised at all. Uh, I, I guess, you know, the timing took me back. I wasn't expecting it to, to come out on a Sunday evening, but um, yeah, you know, like, like I said, those of us who cover the team had been kind of hearing some rumblings and we've been trying to confirm them and haven't got there yet. And so um it, it, it seemed like after, you know, this elimination against the Clippers happened and, and kind of the the bad feelings that took place after that, that, you know, some level of change was inevitable. And this was uh, this was the how it manifested itself. So to draw a line from this to the big picture that Jazz fans really care about, how will this impact more playoff wins happening or not happening? Well, so it's going to be interesting to see uh, – you know, I, I think I think this isn't the end. You know, I think there are more changes that are going to be coming uh, over the next few days. I think we're going to see some other shifts in the front office. Um, I do think that, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, okay, does Danny Ainge now come in? Does he take in? Does he take on a big role? I'm hearing that Justin Zanuck is unquestionably the guy who's going to run the show. And if Danny Ainge or, or anyone else come along, uh, they'll be answering to him. Um, I guess, you know, even even with him uh, having been in the Jazz organization for a number of years now, you know, it, it, it was a situation where Dennis pretty much always had kind of final say on things. And, you know, they did. I, I was listening to you guys interview Shane Young earlier, and, and to his point, you know, there is, while there is this perception that it's, you know, that, that such runoff decisions are kind of unilaterally made by the guy in charge and um, that's not the case you know it is always a team of guys and the Jazz have had a very experienced team of guys Um, you know ultimately if there's if there's disagreement or dissent it comes down to one guy to pull the trigger on it and that's been Dennis and now we'll see that be Justin Zanuck and uh, you know I expect he'll have slightly different philosophies on where to go personnel wise than Dennis did so you'd have to think that with Jay-Z's experience that the franchise is in good hands as far as that goes when they start making decisions. How much do you think that the new ownership is going to be involved? Because we saw a track record, particularly after Larry Miller passed, as what Gail Miller was going to do. And I guess, theoretically anyway, that could change. There could be a change in philosophy there. Yeah, I, I do think you know we'll see... You know, it's an interesting point, right? Like we, we someone asked 
Dennis about uh, the, the influence of Ryan Smith when the Jazz were doing kind of their day after exit interviews with the media, you know, and, and he, uh, he he spoke words that turned out to be kind of prophetic, you know. Um, he mentioned that, you know, regime change is part of the deal with the NBA and that as Ryan Smith got a little more comfortable and then acclimated to the situation that um, he would start to take the franchise in a direction that, that he saw fit. And, yeah, you know, this is this is the first domino falling from that. Um I do expect we're going to see some other changes coming in the front office to that point. In terms of, you know, him dictating like, hey, I want this player, I want that player, I don't know that that will be the case. I think I think his influence comes more in the fact of these are the people who I trust to kind of uh, be the decision makers and, and to be the, the voices who, you know, are, are on that uh, committee of people making making those choices so um yeah i think that's where his real influence will come you know in terms of does he bring in danny ainge does he bring in Shane battier does he you know name personnel guy x y or z i think that's where you're going to see ryan smith's influence uh more come into play people might be a little surprised by the name shane battier but that is not the first time i've heard it you've obviously heard it you wouldn't be throwing it out there um why do you think that, and what what would the benefits be? Well, so Shane Battier has been uh, in, in the Miami Heat's front office for the last few seasons, and he just recently left his position there, so he's a quote-unquote free agent. I don't know uh, at this moment specifically what his interest is. Um, you know, I've heard some conflicting things about whether or not he'd want to come to Utah or, or whether he's chasing some position out of the league entirely. Um, but, you know, he, he's considered a smart guy. He's considered, you know, a knowledgeable personnel guy. Um, you know, he obviously uh, was was a successful right-hand man to Pat Riley and down with the Heat in Miami. So, you know, it's a name that I've heard linked with them, just like we've heard Danny Ainge linked with them. How much, you know, uh, of that is smoke versus fire, I don't know at this point. But, um, again, I'm, I'm hearing that, that Dennis is not going to be the only casualty of, of this change. And so, you know, with some people set to leave or, or have their roles changed, you know, that opens up some spots for other people to come in. What's your good instinct on Mike Conley? I think probably they find a way to bring him back um, just because they absolutely need him back. You know, with with Rudy's contract kicking in and, and Donovan's contract kicking in, they're going to be up against it salary cap-wise. And if they lose Mike, they absolutely cannot replace him with, with a like talent. Um, you know, with anyone who's making any kind of significant money. So, you know, that said, I feel like, you know, th- there's got to be a middle ground sound. Um, obviously, he, he can't bring him back at the number that he made on his last contract uh, just because that would be crazy. And, and the penalties that you'd be paying to the league for being that far over the cap uh, would be astronomical. But, you know, between their need for him and the fact that they're that much better with him and the fact that, you know, he's he's put it out there that he and his wife like it in Utah. I think those are all factors that, that play well into, uh, you know, the possibility of him returning. Now, 
obviously he he played it a little cooler when we spoke to him the day after the season and you know that that's to be expected to some degree you don't necessarily want to if you're in his situation come right out and say i'm absolutely definitely 100 percent returning to utah because you know that that gives him no leverage but um i think in the end there there's probably a way to make it work that makes both sides happy so without making people's heads spin with a bunch of math and a bunch of uh salary cap and luxury tax uh, explanations you know as we try to figure out what kind of owner ryan smith is going to be if they bring him back even if he's i don't know 15 million 20 million i've heard all kinds of numbers thrown out there the number for ryan would be significantly bigger because of the luxury tax so if they do bring him back i guess that tells jazz fans that uh, ryan is willing to write really big checks right i mean yeah that's the thing it's like we'd be looking at a guy who in his first two seasons of ownership uh, enabled the team to be a a tax-spending team both years. And, you know, nothing against the Millers. They had a certain way of doing business, and, and, you know, that happened occasionally under them. But I don't recall a time that it ever happened two years in a row, and, and certainly not to the degree that we'd be looking at this year if they bring Mike Conley back. That's, yeah, I mean, without getting into this, specific numbers as you mentioned they'd be looking at paying a hefty a hefty bill to the league for being so far over the cap so um and i mean as it was this year they were one of the top i want to say five or six spending teams in the league already this past season so he certainly would be uh putting his money where his debit card is in terms of personnel did the Clippers expose something to the Jazz that they need to correct as far as going into next season goes? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, you know, I think the Jazz took an approach of we are going to do these couple of very specific things and we are going to be so good at them that, you know, it won't matter what you throw at us. And we saw the Clippers, you know, exploit that <laughs> to a degree. Um, you know, the Jazz got it done all season long with having uh, Rudy Gobert in the middle and then and then surrounding him with four awesome shooters. Well, how do you beat four awesome shooters? You put five awesome shooters out there. Um, and then, you know, just the fact that all season long, the one defensive issue that the Jazz, they didn't consistently have problems with it, but it was it was the most consistent scheme in terms of throwing, you know, a monkey wrench into their scheme, and that was having uh, five switchable guys. So I think, you know, the fallout from that is is you're going to see the Jazz perhaps try to get a little more flexible. You know, um, ideally you'd like one or two extra wings who are, you know, between 6'7 and, and 6'10 and who are capable of guarding multiple positions. You would like a guy who's capable of changing the dynamic at the five spot, you know, like like Nick Patum did for the Clippers, uh, just in terms of being able to space and spread the floor, in terms of being able to hit from deep, and, and again, in terms of being able to guard a smaller guy out on the perimeter. Um, do I think that Rudy Gobert has got a really bad rap as a result of that series? Yeah, I do. He still is clearly one of the best defensive players in the league, maybe one of the best defensive players in the history of the league. Um, but, you know, he got put into a bad position of having to pick his poison. 
You know, every, everyone got on him about, oh man, Terrence Mann scored 30 points on Rudy Gobert. Well, yeah, you know, um, not to say that Rudy was perfect, but when he's having to choose between, you know, Paul George or Reggie Jackson getting around a hobbled Donovan and, and Mike Conley and having a clear path to the rim for a layup versus, you know, taking his chances with Terrence Mann, of all people, you know, uh, being able to consistently knock down threes, he made the choice that I think most teams would make in that situation. Um, and, and it just happened to bite them this time. Uh, that said, you know, that, that sure seems like an opportunity for this team to kind of address that, you know, and, and opposed to having three classic style old school throwback big men in Rudy Gobert, Derek Favors, and Udoka Azubuki. You know, this seems like an opportunity to add someone in, in the vein of Nick Batum, who's smaller, more mobile, and has some shooting touch. So, yeah, versatility is, is the, uh, the key word for the Jazz this summer. The thing is, and I get why you want a Nicholas Batum type, if, if not him specifically, when Rudy was recruiting him a year ago. Um, and I, I get that, but that only works if the other four guys can stay in front of their guy. And I know Donovan was hurt. But, you know, okay, the other three guys stay in front of their guy. If you get the, the fifth shooter, that doesn't solve your defensive issues unless the other guys are defending better. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, this is uh, that's, that's absolutely true. Their perimeter defense really was not uh, operating at peak functionality against the Clippers. <laughs> and part of that is that, you know, you had Donovan was hobbled and you had Mike Conley who was hobbled. Part of it also is just that they're a naturally small backcourt to begin with. Um, and, you know, you saw with the Clippers having all those guys in there with the long arms. So, yeah, they certainly could stand to upgrade in that area, you know. And this is, this is the problem with the NBA, right? Like there's so many good teams and good players that all it takes is, is one bad matchup for your season to fall apart. So um, I think – Really, what the Jazz have learned from this is, um, you know, we saw the back third of their roster really kind of devoted to either young guys, really young guys who they hoped to develop, who they hoped would kind of come through and, and turn into more, and a few veterans who were like uh, very specific specialists, you know, like Ersan Ilyasova, who I think maybe they hoped would be that small ball five, but he just his own perimeter, uh, you know, his, his own mobility is so limited at this point that it wasn't going to work. And then, you know, a specialist like Matt Thomas, I think what you're going to see them try to do this year is take some of those, you know, 11 through 15 spots and and hopefully, you know, add a bit more depth with guys capable of defending on the perimeter. Add a bit more depth of guys who are, you know, switchable defenders. Add a bit more depth of guys who can still that small ball center role. So we see that there are definite needs on this team. And, you know, maybe they are limited to only specific matchups throughout the league. Because, I mean, we certainly didn't see anyone attack the Jazz with as much success with a small ball switchable lineup as the Clippers did, right? But, uh, you know, Mike Conley brought this up in his exit interview. Like, this is, this is what you have to do in the NBA. You have to have – this is why depth matters that you can have guys like that that you can throw out in matchup specific situations. 
So, Eric, you know, Ryan Smith isn't the only new boss in town. You got a new boss at at, uh, at the Tribune. Are, are you nervous? Oh, that Aaron Falk guy. He's uh, I wouldn't as, as trust anyone him. who's ever met Aaron knows he is an extremely scary and volatile guy. Um, right. <laughs> you know, I personally would have rather worked for someone who's a little more calm and 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 collected and and with a you know non plus demeanor, but. That's just me. Uh, I guess I'm just going to have to make do with this guy who's ranting and raving and raging all the time. But um, and, and for those who obviously don't know Aaron, I'm, I'm you know being sarcastic and smart ass like my mo is. Aaron's an awesome guy. Um, the only nervousness I have is that I've worked under Joe Baird, uh, the outgoing sports editor, for a lot of years, for well over a decade. And I love Joe, and I'm very used to working with Joe. And change is hard for everybody, right? But yeah. that said, I know Aaron, and I know what he's about. And I'm excited to see what he brings to the table. And I think uh, our readers of the Salt Lake Tribune are going to be happy with the changes that uh, they see coming from us going forward. Because I'm a little nervous what's going to happen when they replace DJ as my partner. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know something that DJ doesn't? <laughs> No, 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 not at all. <laughs> Just teeing me up again. <laughs> Welcome to my world, Eric. Random bomb to be dropping in that moment. <laughs> Nothing random about it. <laughs> he was locked in on that for a while. All right, we'll let you go from this uncomfortableness now, Eric, and you can just uh, take off and do your own thing, Eric. Yeah, unfortunately, once you've been exposed to some PK uncomfortableness, it kind of lingers with you for a while. So, um, <laughs> it does. Yeah, it does. I'm, I'm going to throw myself into some work, and we'll see if we can, uh, we'll see if we can get that rinsed away ASAP. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Eric right, Walden, jazz writer for the Salt Lake Tribune. PK uncomfortableness lingering throughout the day. All right, we are joined now. We're live at Jeremy Ranch this morning, Salt Lake Chamber, with their annual golf tournament. Simone Massey, business development officer for the University Federal Credit Union, joins us right now. Now, when you're a business development officer in this time, is it a little bit prices right? Just open the doors and start screaming, come on down. Oh, right. We have a, yeah, we're so excited. Right now we are opening brand new branches. We've recently opened one in St. George. We have three more coming on in Lehigh, Daybreak, and Eagle Mountain. We're getting ready to, after the first of the year, we'll have one started um, in Saratoga Springs. So it has been a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for us. So these us. are the best of times? These are the best of times. It really is. <laughs> nice. We were fortunate. Um, you know, last year was odd. I mean, you guys are probably in your element right now, too, thinking we can actually go and see sure. games. and. You know. Yeah, exactly. Um, and COVID actually allowed all of us, including the chamber, to pivot. And one thing that we were really excited about is we were able to participate in a lot of the PPP loans and help out all these small businesses. And so that was a really good plus for us. And a lot of you know great information came from the chamber, and they were able to refer new clients to us. So it was a great, great partnership. So you're saying it's good to be Santa and just give away free money? <laughs> well, we kind of like that idea, you know, the red and everything. Right now we have our $400 offer. So anybody that comes in, we would love to um, hook you up and take care of you. So um, stop by. It's a really fantastic time to open a new account. And, and we just say, try us out. Find out why it's better here. How important is small business to your organization? 
huge. It, it really is. And it's kind of the lifeblood of our community. Um, and so we are really pride ourselves in, in helping our small business members. And like I said, we were really able to shine during COVID with helping out so many with the PPP loans. And that was a real... So how many of them made it through it and how many did we lose there? What was your experience? You know, as far as, um, un unfortunately, it's more market segment. And mm -hmm. so it was um, the restaurants, you know, really took a big hit. Um, the hospitality, that was, that was really hard. And we're even seeing them trying to recover now. You don't go anywhere where they're not short-staffed or looking for extra help. And so we, we see that being really the the soft spot right now in, in the marketplace. Yeah, so then there's an opportunity for them to come back. Maybe not literal the same one, but generally speaking, the percentage of those that were lost return. Oh, for sure. And, and they also have pivoted. They are doing things different, right? I mean, Uber Eats, who wouldn't have liked to have had stock in that? Yeah, really. <laughs> and so you're seeing a lot of, a lot of places, you know, um, like financial institutions and, and you guys even, you know, everybody's had to pivot and do something a little bit different. Um, Our last year was really different. Oh. I mean, it was really it, it, different. Was, <laughs> yeah. was it even fun? What did you guys do? Uh, I don't know if fun is the right word. It was challenging. It, it was, was interesting. It really was. Yeah. I mean, it, there weren't as many games as we would have liked, and we oh. did a show all through the summer when there was nothing going on, and, and PK was on remote because <laughs> if we're both in the same place and one of us, you know, test positive, the other's, you know, oh, so wow. we had to be separate in case one of us got it, then right. the other one could keep doing the show, and so, yeah, we did a show without looking at each other for a year. <laughs> So. That didn't hurt your feelings, right? Mm. I was okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> it cut down on his commute time. That was I bet. So I at bet. least we still got to work. That was the most important thing because I take work as a very serious issue. Well, and that's what I do want to say. A big shout out to our CEO, um, Jack Betters. You know, he... He said, we are not laying anybody off. We are going to work through this. And um, the credit union really stepped up and supported all of their staff. Um, we, some of us had to go home to work, you know, from home and different mm -hmm. things. But just, just a wonderful place to work. And, and we're really in a good environment. Well, Simone, thanks for the time. We appreciate it. Thanks for joining us up here at Jeremy Ranch. Hey, thank you. Have a great day. Salt Lake Chamber having their annual golf tournament. Simone Massey, Business Development Officer, University Federal Credit Union. Join us here on 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Coming up next, Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports. Nate Johnson, Brandon Rose, Utah Landon, two quarterbacks. Where do the Utes go from here? What's the impact of these two guys? We'll talk with Brandon next. Stay with us. The top 60 and DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We're brought to you in part by Zero Res. When you get the carpet to tile clean, it's never just clean. It's Zero Res clean. Don't have it any other way. Just $33 per room. You deserve the best. You deserve Zero Res. Schedule with Zero Res today. Call them at 801-288-9376 or schedule online by searching for Zero Res Carpet Cleaning. We're joined now by Brandon Huffman. He's joined us before to talk college football recruiting. He's a national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports. Brandon, good morning. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Good. So, the Utes, they've had good teams. The passing game has been the part of the team that has usually been pointed at as the, the group that came up just short 
of whatever they were trying to do, whether it was in the days when they were 5-7 and seven trying to get bowl eligible, the days when they had 8 or 9 wins trying to get the conference title game, or now they've been to the conference title game twice but haven't won the conference and gone to the Rose Bowl or the playoff. So with Nate Johnson, Brandon Rose, the commitments from them, is Utah hitting a new level of quarterback play? I think they are. I think they are, and I think you look at – you know, uh, Brandon Rose is being more of that traditional drop-back pocket passer. Nate Johnson is developing as a passer, but that's not to say he's not a good passer already. He's just a 10-5 guy. He's the fastest quarterback probably in the United States. So you're getting him knowing his legs are a weapon, but the way he has progressed from his sophomore to junior year as a passer and just the continued development there, I think they're going to end up with two really outstanding passers. They just also get a guy who can absolutely fly in Nate Johnson, but they're really checking every box what you need in your quarterback, and now they get two of them in the same class, which is you know almost uncommon nowadays. So for years, Utah had the perception, and maybe it still exists, actually, you know, they're going to run, and if they don't get a first down, they're going to punt and play great defense, and that's going to be the formula to win. So that wasn't necessarily attractive to hotshot recruits, and everybody thinks they want to play in the NFL, and if you want to be a quarterback and play in the NFL, you got to throw for uh, all these thousands of yards and all that stuff. Is that perception of the Utes changing? I think so. I think so. I think when, you know... Whenever you're recruiting an elite recruit, too, you've got to convince them and compel them. Like, hey, some of what we're doing is because we're limited at this position. You can be the guy that changes those limitations. So if we're not a team that's known for as much of our air assault, known much for our passing, you go after a guy who can pass and say, listen, this is what we want to do conceptually, but this is what we've been limited to be able to do because of the resources we have. If you come, you allow us to expand our playbook. You allow us to expand our offense. And so I think if there were any questions about you know Utah not being able to expand on what they're able to do, they now have the pieces in place to expand that passing game, to utilize more of the aerosol. I mean, granted, they're still going to want to win by running the ball. But I, you look at teams, you look at the NFL, you look at college teams, you look at probably the most prominent college team is, is Alabama Nick Saban. It wasn't until about the mid-2010s where Nick Saban realized we have to actually include the forward pass. We can no longer go off of game managers and Asia McCarron turning around and handing it off to one of our 15 running backs. we got to start checking the rock. And I think that you know, Utah's seen just how close they've been to tasting you know, all the riches of the playoffs, to tasting the riches of the Pac-12 title. And maybe it's this one more dimension, adding more of a passing assault to the offense allows that that's going to be attractive to high school quarterbacks because every high school kid thinks I'm just that one missing piece that they need. And when you're able to show them that literally they can be and they are that missing piece, that opens up things that they're able to do on Saturdays. Do the youths have the receivers to go with these quarterbacks? I think they do. But I also think if you look at what Utah has done in the transfer portal these last couple of years, I think that too shows that if they don't have them from the high school ranks, if they don't have them from a recruiting class standpoint, that they hit the portal hard. And then that's where you start to find the talent. And I think, you know, that's a, another topic for another day and a huge big picture topic. But you look at the, their roster right now, I mean, you've got at least two Pac-12 receivers that have transferred in. Um, you've got some guys that have come in as high school recruits, but if you kind of need a, a jolt, you kind of need a, uh, you know, somebody that can come in and make an instant impact that you don't necessarily need to spend two years developing and learning the offense, 
you hit the portal. And I think that you're going to see more and more schools that if they're maybe deficient in one specific area, if they don't have the bodies from a youth standpoint, they'll go hit the portal and not only get older experienced vets, but guys that are going to come in and it's a business decision, business move for them. They're coming in more ready than maybe a high school freshman is because these guys really realize that this is their last opportunity. So that gets you a Theo Howard, a Manero McLean, and that gives you an opportunity to start having some more dimensions added to your passing attack. So how is the transfer portal affecting high school recruiting? Well, I'll tell you one thing. With the exception of quarterback, it's really causing high school coaches to pause just how aggressive they've been in recruiting. Now, you're still going to have some schools that they realize that they still need to make a ton of offers. You have some schools that have offered into the two, three hundreds of offers. Then you have other schools that have only maybe made 40 or 50 offers. They've been a little bit more deliberate in their approach, a little bit more picky in the type of uh, the, the targets that they're going after. And so because of that, you're now going to find the portal. You're finding guys that there's no drama. There's no, you know, the, the social mediaization of the recruiting process are no longer an issue. I mean, one of the big things that when we saw guys go back to take unofficial visits in June was the reintroduction of photo shoots. Half these guys are going on visits just to have the Instagram picture. There's no interest in that school. There's no interest from that school in them, but it looks cool on social media. But when you get to a guy who's been in the portal, maybe he's been out of school for two years, he doesn't care about recruiting trips. He doesn't care about official visits. He doesn't care about seeing if he fits the town. He sees an opportunity to get up that depth chart, get on top of that depth chart quick, and it's a business decision. I think you're seeing more college coaches try to cut out the recruiting drama and just find the guys that need to be there in addition to wanting to be there. And I think you're going to see more and more schools hit the portal hard because, A, you're not having to develop, you're not having to wait, you're not having to redshirt, you're not having as many guys. Yeah, yeah, you're still going to lose guys to the portal, which allows you to go into the portal. But I think you're seeing a different mentality from the guys in the portal and it's not always negative, although there's a lot of people that like to throw shade at guys that go in the portal on Twitter. There are a lot of guys that they just want to play, and that's why they go in the portal. And there's not a clear depth chart, so they find a school where the depth chart's more manageable. So I think you're going to see schools hit the portal that much harder because those guys come with less frills and less drama and more immediate impact ability. Brandon Huffman joined us, National Recruiting uh, covering national recruiting for 24-7, and I am curious what you think of what USC is doing because if Utah is improving, but if USC is improving by leaps and bounds, Ute fans still end up frustrated. What's your take on the Trojans? Well, I think they've done a really good job of kind of recapturing their, their brand out west, but what's been fascinating, as good as their 2021 class was, it, it was really good too. I mean, they had a lot of players from the state of California that decided to stay home, guys that they were losing. If you look at their class this year, there's a heavy influence of out-of-state guys. I mean, if you look at some of the players that they've gotten commitments from, you got Texas, you got Georgia, you got players from outside the state of California. And is that because the well, California kids just aren't interested? Is that because they, you know, USC sees that maybe the talent in California isn't as strong? You know, there, there may be a couple of reasons, but what you are seeing is that. USC is very, very worried and concerned about their national brand fading. And so they've, done, they've had a much more concerted effort to go national this year to show that that brand still is alive and kicking. The problem when you do that, when you are strong in a certain region, is that means there's a lot of guys in your backyard that you may be overlooking or may not take commitments from that ultimately and eventually come back to bite you 
come Saturdays in the fall when they get to college. So there may be some guys percolating out there that would have been normal USC targets in a, in a perfect scenario in a perfect year, and USC, for whatever reason, is looking past them. Those are the guys that go to other Pac-12 schools and then end up torturing programs for three or four years. So I think it's a bold strategy. I think when you're USC, I've long said this, you can go sign 90% of your class within a 30- to 40-mile radius, then go cherry-pick two or three or four guys nationally from Georgia or Texas. But your home base should be California, and yet USC seems to be going on an opposite approach. They kind of are going what Oregon has been doing, where Oregon maybe gets one or two guys from the state. Obviously, demographically, the talent's not as strong in Oregon and California, but Oregon thrives off of going out of their state. I think USC doesn't need to go out of state, but this is what their kind of approach is now under Clay Helton. Let's try to go more national and show that we have that national brand, but then you tend to forget local as well. How much is this imaging and likeness and all that stuff going to affect recruiting? I think it's going to be a huge step in the direction of that's what schools are going to focus on. You know, over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen the arms race from a facility standpoint. We've seen one school say, oh, you're going to build a $50 million facility. We're going to build a $51 million facility just so we could say we have the most expensive facility in the conference. Hiring strength and conditioning coaches and nutrition programs and trying to give all the bells and whistles. But now we're seeing a return to, hey, it's about what we can do to build your own brand, what we can do to market you. The strength and conditioning is nice. The, the, the nutrition program is nice. But how are we helping your brand? And, what, again, I, I go back to the social mediaization of recruiting. More and more kids are now understanding this is when you build your brand. You don't build it after you've established yourself as a 25-year-old, 30-year-old uh, NBA or NFL star, you establish it when you're 15 or 16. Your parents finally give you permission to get Instagram and TikTok and Twitter. It's not unusual to go to a seven-on-seven tournament or to a camp and see a player have his own small video crew tracking his every move. So now you're starting to see, and this is the first official visit, visit cycle, uh, largely because of the pandemic pushing it back, but this is the first official visit cycle where now when you talk to a kid after his official visit, he talks about the NIL meeting, the, the, the coaches that are, are talking about it. Those are the ones that you can tell they understand it's going to be a big thing. The, to me, the biggest part of this is there's 25 guys in the class that are going to sign. Three to five maybe are going to be marketable. There's 20 to 22 guys that think that they're going to have the same cachet as other guys in those classes, and they're going to be greatly disappointed. So college coaches are going to have to massage a lot of egos here when they sign a kid and nobody's interested in that kid promoting their product on Instagram because nobody cares about the third-string backup left tackle. You're not the quarterback. You know, Trevor Lawrence can go and get all the endorsements he wants and needs, but the backup quarterback who was the 25th pick in that or 25th guy in that class, I think the best example I've used before is if you go back and look at Alabama's 2017 class, Nobody in the world, and certainly nobody in Tuscaloosa, would have cared about Mac Jones and wanted to have him market anything. Everybody would have wanted to go for Tua. Nobody cares about what you did after college anymore. It's what you can do when you get to school. So you're going to have situations like that where guys just aren't going to be marketable. So college coaches, not only do they have to talk about how they're going to help with the name, image, and likeness and the branding, they're going to have to massage the egos of those that there is no interest in. Or someone's going to guarantee him fifty grand because that's going to be the new shtick. Well, and, and you know that's been the biggest concern. But I mean, I realize there are certain parts of the country, and I'm not naming any specific regions, where they seem to spend a high amount of money on recruiting, or there's 
the accusations or the assumptions that large amount of bags, but as reckless as boosters can be, I just don't see them dropping 50 grand per recruit in any class. I mean, I would love to have the kind of money where I could do that. And shoot, I wouldn't be giving it to a 17-year-old who may or may not transfer out after the first fall practice. But that's the thing. I think there's going to be a much more judicious process to it. So even the boosters are going to say, well, now we can do it. Instead of giving 50 grand to every kid, we can give 250 to this star quarterback who he's the difference between us going to a regular bowl game on New Year's Day to now we can play for a national championship. I think you're just going to see more players, the high-end players, top-end players, value increase that much more rather than an evening of the playing field that everybody's going to get a piece of the pie. Brandon, as always, we appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us and talking a little youths and a little recruiting. Anytime, guys. I appreciate you guys having me on. Oh, bigger name on another line we hear in the background. Go get him, Brandon. <laughs> Brandon Huffman, National Recruiting Editor for 24-7 Sports. Join us here on 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Your feedback next. Stay with us. And it's all over almost here. Don't go nowhere. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. Time for your feedback. John. Says, guys, I hate the question I'm about to ask, but it needs to be asked. Did Derek Favors contribute to our inability to beat the Clippers? Was Gobert left on that island because there was no other option? Well, the long answer is more complicated in this segment, but the short answer is yes. Favors was the only option, and he wasn't the right option, so I guess to that degree, uh, sure, he contributed. I think the bigger factor is guys on the perimeter not being able to stay in front of their guy. Oh, I think that uh, Derek Favors was the option they chose. I don't think it was the only option. He was the option they chose. As far as roster building, I think by the time you got to the game, they were in a pretty bad spot. You know, I mean, there were other options. I mean, do you let Terrence Mann take the shot? Clearly the guys in the perimeter were told not to rotate to Terrence Mann. He's the guy we're going to live or die with him making a shot, and he made a bunch of them. So at some point, should they have rotated to him and see if somebody else can shoot that clip? So, yeah. I mean, there's other options, but I think the question, what I'm, I'm taking this implication here is, do they need a, a small ball center? But do they need one? I mean, they didn't need one when they won the best, had the best record in the league. They didn't need one when they beat Memphis, and they didn't need one for the first two games of the Clippers. Yep. So, but they needed one for the next four of the Clippers. Then go get one. I wouldn't be surprised if they do. Yeah. But I don't think that solves the whole problem because the problem is <laughs> the problem is the Jazz had too many guys who couldn't stay in front of their man. Then how'd they win two games? Uh, the Clippers got more focused on driving the ball to the hoop. And Marcus Morris, who I was thinking, if he hurts him, he's going to hurt him as a spot-up shooter. He was driving into the paint. He was breaking the paint. They shot 75% from three. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I tend to think that if they didn't shoot anywhere close to that and shot what their career or seasonal averages were, it wouldn't have been as bad. So, I mean, that's a chicken and egg thing there. It is. It is a chicken and egg thing. And that's why to put it on any one player, uh, it's bigger than that. Yeah. You know. All right, DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We are broadcasting live from Jeremy Ranch. Salt Lake Chambers having their annual golf tournament. We are joined now by Jonathan 
Fulton, he is the Senior Vice President for Business Development and Strategic Planning for Morton and Company. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Okay. Yes. So, I guess the question is, first off, what does Morton and Company do? Morton and Company does corporate insurance. So, we do property and casualty insurance and employee benefits. Uh, you look really excited about no, that. No, actually, I'm thinking that this is a line of work my, call, my one of my former college roommates is in in okay. the Bay Area. Okay. And gotcha. he's crushing it. Okay, good. Well, we've, we've been in – we started in Utah, and we've been in business for over 110 years. So long-time contributor to the community, to our clients and our employees here in Utah, now in Idaho and in Colorado. So I know a Morton guy really well. He's pretty shady, man. You guys are shady guys. <laughs> <laughs> depends depends on who the Morton guy is that you know. But no, I don't think it's one of ours. So no, I, I we're we're a long-standing company with integrity and uh, and whoever you know, he's he's probably not with us. I actually have an account with the Jazz. What's that? You have an account with the Jazz? Yes. Yes. That's what I understand. Yes. So when you guys sit and talk about the jazz, I don't know about the two of you, but we, a couple of us crawled into a hole for a little while after game six, cried <laughs> it out, and then, you know, now we're back to work. That was you know, I one. saw the, uh, the TV ratings after that, and you were not alone. Yeah. There were many people crawling into many holes and just whimpering quietly That's and right. processing. That's right. And they That's will emerge. Right. <laughs> but it'll take a little time. Yeah. Yep. As That's it frequently right. does this time of year for most NBA fan bases. That's right. Well, your company survived COVID and it's now time to get back to where you were or get even better. Get even better. We, we were a little bit, as, as most businesses were at the start of COVID, a little concerned that business would not be good, that layoffs might occur. But in the 110 years that we've been in business, we've never had layoffs due to business interruption or decline. So we had a solid financial year last year. We didn't have any layoffs, and we actually were net positive as far as employee count and hiring. So we, we did just fine. So this, <laughs> this is really the essence of the whole industry. I was about to say, what is the big risk for your company in these times? But, I mean, risk, that's like, you know, that's a word you must hit about every <laughs> yeah. 30 seconds yeah. in an insurance company. Yeah. There are... Maybe the big challenge. How about that? The big challenge. The big challenge. I think the big challenge for us last year was making sure that our employees were taken care of and making sure that the clients were taken care of as well. Uh, our number one concern was that our employees were kept safe. Um, so it's balancing doing everything we can to keeping our employees safe while also keeping clients safe because that's our entire business is keeping our clients safe, helping them uh, balance and address risk. And so that was our biggest challenge in 2020, and we handled it well. So for 2021? 2021, we're all gas, no brakes. Uh, we're, we're looking good. <laughs> um, we're growing, we're hiring, and uh, we're still focused on the same things, which is keeping our clients happy and taking care of them and keeping our employees happy and taking care of them. So all this growth in Utah, all these new businesses starting up or moving in? Yes. Constant, yeah. constant source of new business for you. Yeah. I mean, Utah historically has been a great place to do business. And as everybody sees, that's not changing anytime soon. Uh, it's, it's a fantastic place to work and to live. And, and we're positioned really strongly in the market to, to benefit from, from the net migration that we see coming into the state. So it's a good place to be.
Well, Jonathan, we appreciate the time. Thanks for taking a few minutes to join us and uh, hustle back out. We've actually had people put down the headset and sprint back out to the golf course because they're like, I know I missed one hole. Right. This can't turn into two or three. They're looking for the gift card over here I, on the wall. I didn't come here to play 15 holes of golf. Right, right. right. Nope. Right. Thanks for having me. I appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Jonathan. Jonathan Fulton, Senior Vice President of Business Development and Strategic Planning for Morton and Company. DJ and PK, we're out of time. Hans and Scotty are coming up next.